Well, good morning, Menlo Church, and welcome to the second weekend in our Lent series, The Path of Surrender. I'm so glad that you have chosen to be uh, a part of this conversation with us. Welcome to our Bay Area campuses in San Mateo, Menlo Park, Mountain View, Saratoga. Those of you joining us online, wherever you are today as we continue this conversation, I am so thankful that we get a chance to prepare for Easter together. That's what Lent really is, preparing for Easter, this, to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus and the hope that you and I can have because of that. It's a chance for us to examine our journey of following Jesus in the practical steps of our lives. Because we all know it is really easy to check a box, right? Maybe it's on a form. Maybe it's you say, I agree with this idea. I agree with this ideological category. I am a Christian. Uh, but there is quite a bit of a difference between what we say we believe and whether or not we have examined if that belief has actually informed our life. And Lent, it gives us this annual chance to do just that. So I hope you're participating with us as we prepare to celebrate. It's not too late, by the way, uh, to begin our devotional journey together in the YouVersion Bible app that began last week. If you missed it and you want to jump in, it's not too late. If you need help, you can stop by Info Central at whichever campus you're at today, and someone would love to help you if you got stuck. It's also not too late to uh, surrender or to fast from something in your life as a part of Lent. That has been a practice for many, many years for followers of Jesus to say, I'm going to give up this thing that I have an appetite for, usually a good thing, um, that actually then I'm saying, God, would you take this good appetite and direct it towards an ultimate appetite to pursue you with the truest part of me, with the greatest uh, part of me. And so uh, I hope you get a chance to think about maybe even if you haven't started that yet, it's very easy uh, to compartmentalize our faith and say, God wants my faith. He wants this part of my finances, maybe. He wants this part of my week. Uh, but actually, because the path of Jesus is the path of abundant life now and eternal life waiting, Jesus wants that to inform every part of your life. He wants your whole life. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. Before we get started, though, I'm going to pray for us. And if you've never been here before or never heard me speak, I pray kneeling. And part of the reason that I do that is to remind myself and to remind us as a community that surrendering to the God of the universe is a necessary daily practice, not because God needs it, but because we do. So no matter your spot in your own walk of faith, would you humble yourself for a moment with me and let's pray together. God, thank you. Thank you for the moments like these that we get where maybe we walked in distracted, we walked in uh, with some distorted desires, and, and God, you want to change that. You want to bring a freshness to that. You want to bring a perspective that we wouldn't have without you. Would you do that right now? Would you give us, God, the confidence, the perspective, and the power uh, to be able to live what it means to follow you this week in a way we didn't have before right now? We know you can. We pray that you will. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. So our family moved to the Bay Area, let's call it 13, 14 months ago now. And when we moved here, I had lived in places uh, where there are these things called seasons. They're pretty cool. Um, and uh, especially one where it would snow. Snow is like rain, but colder, like a lot colder and white and fluffy. It accumulates. Uh, you've seen it in Tahoe. And so... Um, the thing about it was I didn't know how it would feel to not have seasons in my daily life that I've become used to. Uh, and then I discovered in the Bay Area, 
you become a weather wimp and you do have seasons, right? You're like, oh, it's five to seven degrees colder and raining. This is winter now. You know, like that's uh, a thing I'm discovering. And uh, I think that has absolutely happened. Like now even a few hours of clouds can make me miss the sun and be a little mad about it. Uh, I think that means that weather wimp status has been achieved. Like I'm not wearing mittens yet, but I could see it in my future, you know? But the thing is, with seasons come annual rhythms in our life, and they sort of give us cues about different things that we do throughout the year. And one of those is the idea of spring cleaning. Spring cleaning is a concept that's been around for a very long time. As a matter of fact, in some cultures, including religious cultures, it stems from and is rooted in the traditional expression of that faith. One of the ways that we think about Lent every year is that it's kind of a spring cleaning in which we examine the clutter that we have accumulated in our lives. It's a really good gift that God gives us in this season of the year. Now, what makes it really easy to avoid this is that our inner clutter is way more difficult to detect than our outer clutter, right? If our inner clutter looked like, I don't know, a show like Hoarders, uh, where someone's home is completely overrun with stuff, we would probably take it more seriously. And if you've ever been featured on that show, this is a safe place. We're glad that you're here. But we've been, maybe for a long time, able to look around at the clutter in our lives and it feels like it's so insurmountable, we haven't known where to start. Or maybe the clutter feels so massive that we've actually become blind to it because it's all that we know. And this inner clutter, it might not even seem so bad. Like it can be though just as damaging as if we were on that episode of Hoarders. If there was an internal Hoarders episode, I think many of us might be on it. In the classic book, Ordering Your Private World, Gordon MacDonald puts it this way. He says, are we going to order our inner worlds, our hearts, so that they will radiate influence into the outer world, or will we neglect our private worlds and thus permit the outer influence to shape us? This is a choice we must make every day of our lives. And that's what makes it hard. Making a decision to do this one time, praying that God would give us this perspective at a point of crisis or need, that's easy. But understanding that this happens every single day, and I would argue actually moment by moment, um, that is so much more difficult because we always drift for more. We drift for more complexity. We drift for more clutter. We drift for more priorities, especially in our culture and day. And the call of Jesus all the time is that we pay particular attention to this part of our lives, especially in Lent, how we might simplify our complexity back to the first principles of our faith in Jesus in every part of our life. It's also a great time in the year to explore faith if you are brand new, if you're not sure about Jesus, because we see it's purest form in the person of Jesus. And as we walk through Jesus' final week in his earthly ministry, we see how he embodied this in his life. What we're going to discover in the next season from, or next season rather, from this final season of Jesus' week of earthly ministry 2,000 years ago is that outer order doesn't mean inner peace. We can look the part, but not be actually what we say. We know this intuitively, but our muscle memory, all of our muscle memory can betray us. We end up grasping at straws in our outer world to fix our inner world. Maybe you can relate to that. When you feel overwhelmed, there's something in your life you go grab at, you take control of, you organize, right? 
This final week of Jesus' earthly ministry, it started last week with Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. That was the passage that we studied. In a moment of deep contrast, there were these expectations that people had of Jesus, including his closest followers, that they believed a conquering hero and king would enter in and take the earthly throne. That was what they were expecting. Instead, Jesus comes in on a humble donkey with a plan to offer salvation to the entire world. Not for a kingdom he would take over, but for a kingdom he never left that would be revealing itself forever and ever. That's where we begin today. So maybe this week, a part of your own path of surrender has involved coming to grips with the fact that you have unsustainable expectations in your faith or your Jesus specifically. See, Jesus is definitely going to do more of that this week as we uh, see when Jesus changes profit for prayer. Now, before you start writing me an email accusing me of turning Jesus into a political enemy of yours, let me just clarify, Jesus is totally okay with you making a living. But in this specific section, there were some liberties that were being taken by the religious leaders that created obstacles for people that Jesus was trying to remove obstacles for, and that became a problem. It's really easy to oversimplify problems in our world, uh, but we can sometimes feel powerless, just like those that Jesus is advocating for in the early days of the church. Whether it's price gouging for gas or essential goods and services at a time of crisis, or maybe it's prices staying high even when inflation has started to come down. Not that that would ever happen for us. I've just heard about it. We might be annoyed or maybe overwhelmed by those kinds of barriers in our life for the kind of life we want to live. But because of Jesus, we don't have to worry about how we will pay for the sacrifices necessary to fulfill the legal requirements of our faith because Jesus did that for us once and for all. That's what we celebrate as followers of Jesus. That wasn't the case in Jesus' day. Once a year, the Jews would come to Jerusalem, all of them, and they had to find a way to offer sacrifices as a part of their faith as they prepared for Passover. All of it was in this multi-generational illustration of the ultimate sacrifice that they were waiting for the Messiah, who they did not know was Jesus, would make for everyone. That's what they were waiting for. And so Matthew, a Jewish man who'd been a tax collector and wrote a biography of Jesus' life, he wrote it down this way. It says, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Another one of the biographies, remember last week we talked about four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Unique perspectives, unique audiences, but the same life that they were uh, recording. Another one of those bi biographies of Jesus' life, it tells us that this entry into the temple is likely the next day from what we read last week. And so Jesus has probably shared a meal. He's probably rested. He's probably slept. And now he's beginning the next day by heading into the temple. It wasn't like Jesus was just going to church on a weekend. This was really unique. The Jewish people, they were preparing for the Day of Atonement. They were preparing for Passover. And Jerusalem would have been buzzing with activity as people prepared for the celebrations and the sacrifices that marked the day and this week for the Jewish people. Every single year, every single year, every single year. 
Jesus walked into the temple area and cleared people out in a way that can feel very different than the Jesus we read about in lots of places. The meek and mild Jesus, the patient Jesus, the Jesus that is interruptible, the Jesus that is so kind and loving. And then we see this Jesus. And for some people, this is the Jesus that they want to see all the time. Table flipping Jesus is the only Jesus they're interested in. And actually, some of you, you use it to justify why you're mad a lot. You go, well, even Jesus flipped tables. That is true. One time, he definitely did. And I would just say we should not shy away from a passage like this, but we also shouldn't make this all of who Jesus is. It takes understanding both. See, this was a tiny part of his ministry, and the reason for why he did it is really important. It's what's most important. He isn't in the innermost part of the temple called the Holy of Holies. As a matter of fact, we have no evidence that Jesus ever went into the innermost section of the temple. Only the high priest did, and he only did it once a year, the Holy of Holies um, on the Day of Atonement to make sacrifice for all of the Jewish people. This place, Jesus was in an area called uh, the Court of the Gentiles. Uh, It was the furthest edge on the Temple Mount, and it was where non-Jews, the Gentiles, like you, if you went uh, to go worship, that's where you would go to pray. God had always wanted Israel from the very beginning to be a lamp for the nations to find God, that everyone would be able to see the God of Israel and know that he could be their God too. But Israel often became distracted internally and they forgot to look outward to other people. They became obsessed with what they wanted, with their security, with their comfort, with their provision, with their expectations being met. Now, that would never happen for the church today, right? That's just them. But that's what Jesus was ultimately criticizing. That's what he was flipping tables because of. And technically, the religious leaders of the day, they weren't breaking any rules by allowing money changers to be in this area, but it violated the spirit of giving Gentiles a place to pray to the God of Israel. Instead, they set up tables like a convention center. This was like the comic con of sacrifices. And instead, they had all these people who were there to convert foreign currency so that the sacrifices that needed to be made out of one currency could be made by the Jewish people who'd traveled to that area. We know that probably because of how Jesus described it, the conversion rates were not the most generous, right? Not only that, but pigeons, they represented the sacrifice that the poorest and most underserved part of the Jewish population could purchase and still participate in this really important week. And likely they were being sold with the same kind of markup as a churro at Disney. Like that is the scale that we're talking about. Now, you're already in the Temple Mount, you're kind of stuck. And so you are going to get ripped off. And Jesus likely calls them robbers because that's the scene he walks into. So instead of leaving this place available to Gentiles to pray and pursue God, they crowded it out with people who were making it even more difficult for the poor and marginalized in their society to participate in this crucial week. Now you can see why Jesus was in a table flipping kind of mood. Now, here's the thing. Jesus didn't lose his temper. Jesus never lost his temper, but he is clearly angry about this injustice that's represented here. He had been traveling to Jerusalem for decades to attend Passover. He had been watching this abuse year after year after year after year after year year and saying nothing. And this time, this time we see him flip 
the tables. And one of the reasons I think he did it this time is because he knew that his time was short. There is a version of our faith that can become overly political. And one expression of that is where justice becomes kind of a third rail, where advocating for the marginalized and underserved in our world is, is too political. And Jesus was probably judged as being too political sometimes too. But it doesn't stop him from demonstrating compassion and advocating change. And can I just, for a minute, make sure we all understand, God wants you involved in advocating for justice in your world, in your circumstances, in your sphere of influence. This place where our faith is so personal, but these broken things that we see all around us that we should be advocating for change for, well, that's the problem of the government. And you should vote. You should have political perspective informed by Jesus. But you should also take action personally to bring about the values of the kingdom of heaven in a broken and hurting world. As a matter of fact, uh, author and activist Justin Gaboni, he puts it this way. He says, love for others should compel us to advocate for justice on their behalf, just as we would do for ourselves. When we're confronted with a societal problem, we must consider the best solution out of love, compassion, and justice. Some of us, we want to make our faith exclusively that. Some of us want to make our faith absolutely not include that. And Jesus holds conviction and compassion together. Look, even this Lent season, I wonder what are the things that you are tempted to let get in the way of you and for you, for you and others in your life in genuinely pursuing God? How can you change that? Maybe for you, there are people, as you think about celebrating Easter, there are people that you sort of avoid the conversation of faith because they've experienced hurt in church. And I just think like Jesus said that the church would be known around the world by the way we loved each other. And so church hurt to me feels uniquely painful because it's this calling card we're supposed to have and it demonstrates how far short of that we often fall. What if this Lent season, not only did you not try and avoid that conversation, you engaged in it. You didn't try to rationalize, you just listened with empathy and care. What could God do through you and that person's life if you chose to do that? Or maybe week after week you come in and you see someone sitting by themselves and rather than just assuming they have a story, assuming that they're okay, what if you didn't? What if you offered to sit next to them? What if you enveloped them into your community? That's the kind of thing that I think God can do even if he hasn't done it through you in a long time. Look, our Easter, it can be neat and tidy. We can wear our Sunday best while our life is a mess because outer order doesn't mean inner peace. But we can also let God do some spring cleaning in us, even if it unearths deeper clutter than we were aware of. Because God can bring healing in your life, especially when we bring light to the places where healing is necessary. If we feel like we have to pretend to be perfect, we're lying to ourselves and lying to other people and creating barriers between the healing that God wants to bring through honesty and our own sort of self-perception and performance. See, once the money changers are forced out of the court of Gentiles, we see this amazing moment when Jesus welcomes praise over protocol. Now, this was something that he did throughout his ministry, but it becomes the most pronounced in the verses that we're about to read. They show us the final straw for the religious leaders who have been trying to come up with the perfect reason, the perfect rationale, the perfect excuse to ultimately take Jesus' life. The religious leaders in Jesus' day, they were very specific and very strict about policies 
and protocols. And we can all be pretty hard on them, right? It's easy to think about the religious leaders in Jesus' day and turn them into caricatures when we read passages like this. But before you judge them too harshly, think about all the places that we live with the letter of the law, but we can miss the spirit or miss the point in our own lives and in the world around us. One of the ways that I see this happen pretty regularly is the haphazard way that I see airport security get run. Every time I walk through airport security, it's like flip a coin. Sometimes I feel like I'm undergoing a deep body scan to enter Earth's orbit. Uh, And I like my cavity, like the fillings in my teeth require greater security checks. And then other times I walk through what feels like an unplugged medical detector and they're like, have a great flight. You know, it's a very interesting contrast. And if you work at TSA, yes, I'm being a little hyperbolic. But uh, doesn't it feel interesting how different those can be sometimes? The protocol and the policies can sometimes make us forget the original reason that they were put in place. That can be true in your life too. Maybe Lent is a great time to remind you that you don't spend time with God every day so that you can check the box that you spent time with God every day. You spent time with God every day so that you can abide with God every day, that the power that he wants you to live your life with as a mom, as a dad, as a husband, as a wife, as a young professional, as a student, as a neighbor, that you'd be able to walk not empowered by you, but empowered by him. So maybe, maybe you aren't as bad as the Pharisees, but if somebody was sitting in your seat at church, or maybe somebody sent you that spreadsheet at work in the wrong format, are you the person who has to like stop yourself from letting them know about it? Most of us, we have things that we're pretty set in, even if we aren't always sure why. So here's how Matthew remembers this scene. It says, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Mark's account, another one of the biographers of Jesus' life, it finishes with the religious leaders plotting how they would kill Jesus because they had become afraid of how popular Jesus had become. Remember last week, thousands of people welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem. He had just raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. All of the ways that sort of things had been concealed were now being revealed, and they are terrified about the way the system is about to get broken. It seems like this is the section where the, the religious leaders went from if they would kill Jesus to how they would kill Jesus. See, the the first problem that the chief priests and the scribes certainly had was that these kinds of people, sick and unclean, had come to the temple. Now, they were supposed to be able to have access somewhat to this whole system, um, but they had really worked pretty hard to make sure they didn't feel very welcome in the temple or on the temple mount. And instead of uh, having them go away, Jesus healed them. Now, The thing is, if somebody at church on a regular basis who I had never met was interacting with people who had never seen in their life and those people were leaving and leaving their walking stick behind because they could see, they were asking for sunglasses for a different reason, I would have questions. If somebody uh, was at church and every time somebody interacted with them, they rolled in in a wheelchair and then they donated the wheelchair on the way out as they left, I would be 
curious. Like if, if I knew nothing else, I would be curious. But that's not what we see from the religious leaders. They don't look with curiosity. They look with animosity. They aren't wondering what Jesus' true identity is or how he did this. They are furious, specifically about the words that these children are shouting. Now, I'm a father with young kids. I have been furious at kids shouting too. I get it. I understand. But they're furious about what they're shouting because the kids, like the people the day before, are shouting that Jesus is God. They're saying this is the Messiah. Now, the thing that would have been really difficult for him is when we look early in Jesus' earthly ministry, specifically his public ministry, three years earlier, every time he did some amazing miracle like this, he would do it in kind of private settings or more small groups, and he would tell the people, don't tell anyone. And it wasn't because it was a secret necessarily, but he knew the faster that more people knew what he could do, empowered by his father, and knew uh, the, the scale of what he was there to do, the faster that this death sentence was coming. And so he concealed it, but what was concealed early would get revealed later. And so now the religious leaders, they are coming after him because they see the full picture of who he was. Here we have religious leaders that are plotting to kill Jesus as he performs miracles in the temple. And he accepts praise from children that are reserved for God. Jesus wasn't bragging. He wasn't being arrogant. He was recognizing like, well, that is who I am. They're just identifying correctly who I am. Now, this is one of those messianic prophecies that we talked about last week. There are more than 300 of them in the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. And in them, they are future promises about Jesus that he would fulfill written hundreds of years before he was on earth. And Jesus, he he says to this group of religious leaders, he says, oh, oh, maybe you haven't read it. And he lists one of those prophecies from the book of Psalms. And uh, the reason that this is kind of a dig is because especially the scribes that he's talking to, they would have had all of that memorized. And so he's asking a group of people who have committed most of their lives uh, to the work and the pride associated with having memorized it. Have you read what you memorized? That's why they're doing it. It was a massive dig from Jesus to the religious leaders. They had been so entrenched in their religious tradition that they had forgotten to be on the lookout for God himself. They were so busy with the rituals of the system that they had forgotten the point of the system. The Messiah was always supposed to be the one that made a sacrifice that they were all preparing for. He was originally supposed to be the one that would make all these sacrifices unnecessary, but they'd stopped looking for him because the sacrifices had become so primary. In his book, The Celebration of Disciplines, Richard Foster points out our own proclivity to the same problem. He says, the tragedy of modern faith is not its inability to produce disciplined followers, but its failure to cultivate deep, lifelong relationships with the divine. See, too often we mistake the rigor of religious practice for the reality of spiritual intimacy, confusing the form of godliness with its power. Isn't that so true? So as good as fasting from something during Lent is, and it is, as good as going through the devotional on version together is, and it is, they aren't in and of themselves enough. When our spiritual practices become an end in and of themselves, we have missed the point. It's that God actually wants to transform you and me by the renewing of our minds, that our lives would look different. We see this kind of thing happen all over the place. 
We start using social media as a means of connection, and before we know it, there is a sense of competition in which we, we see it as only good if we get enough likes or we get enough positive comments, and if not, maybe we even take it down. Or maybe in school, you know that the goal should be learning for the kind of person you want to be or the kind of legacy you want to lead, but instead you find yourself basically saying, what does the teacher want to hear that will give me the grade that I want to get? And that's what we aim for. There's so many areas in our lives where we can settle for outer order and sacrifice inner peace as a result. Jesus is pointing out how quickly these religious leaders, who probably started with really good intentions, ended up, because of corruption in their power and confusion in their priorities, settling for outer order and sacrificing inner peace in the process. We live in a watching world, Menlo Church, and people who are close to us, but far from the relationship that Jesus died to provide, they can detect when we are aiming at the wrong target. Even your religious achievements won't make you fulfilled. And when you fake being perfect, you're just faking it. And people in your life, they need to see that you need Jesus as you tell them they need Jesus. That didn't stop when you prayed a prayer. It didn't stop when you became a Christian. Needing Jesus is an everyday, all the time part of our journey with him. Jesus, he called out the problem this way. He says, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Don't sacrifice your soul on the altar of your resume, even if it's your spiritual resume, even if you can justify the good it might cause for someone else. Jesus is saying that's not worth your soul. Last week was a pretty tough week for lots of us, right? Is it too early to talk about the San Francisco 49ers? We were going in, it looked like we were gonna pull out a victory, even in overtime, we were driving the ball, we are in the red zone, but we went for a field goal. Now, I don't think the play caller for the 49ers attends Menlo, but if you ever see him, just let him know, next time that he's playing Patrick Mahomes, you should go for it right there. Uh, now, I know that for some of you, the last couple of sentences were the most confusing part of any sermon you've ever heard. So let me put it this way, we played it safe. We went with the option that wasn't likely to win the game, but hopefully wouldn't lose it either, and we lost because of it. Some of you, you are approaching Lent with a spiritual field goal attitude. You aren't letting God very far beneath the surface of your life. You decided to give up coffee between 2 a.m. and 4 a.m. Like, <laughs> you did it. <laughs> Something easy and irrelevant for your life. Or maybe you're just like breathing, breezing through a devotional rather than dedicating time to it. And it's really not about what God can do through it. It's just that you checked that you did it. A relationship with God can provide so much more for us and through us if we don't just play it safe. If we will really invest and trust that God can transform our lives because of it. If you're in a romantic relationship, you had another example of this just a few days ago. If Valentine's Day is the one time a year you do something nice for the significant other in your life, or you maybe even have to be reminded to do it, your relationship probably isn't making much of a difference in your life. On the other hand, if you invest consistently and you take moments like these seriously, it can be really memorable and fun and special. Sure, it's inconvenient, of course. It's expensive. I've never paid more for flowers than in Silicon Valley in my life. I don't know if they have gold in them. I have no idea. Sure, it's time-consuming, absolutely. But for the one you love, it's worth it. Think about what Jesus is preparing to do for us in this series. Talk about inconvenient. 
He came from heaven to earth for you, from the cradle to the cross for you. I'm certainly glad inconvenient wasn't a problem for him. Talk about expensive. He endured immense suffering for you. He died on the cross for you. He took the punishment for your sin. Talk about time-consuming. He had existed outside of time entirely. He made it, and the creator made himself subject to his own creation in functioning within time and limits in the first place. Jesus modeled this so well for us, and Lent is a chance for us to respond. So what does it say about our relationship with God when we settle for outer order, when he died so that we might have inner peace? In just a moment, at all of our campuses, you're going to have a moment to practice this in a unique way. And I just hope that even if Lent for you is a new thing, a new practice, a new part of your journey with Jesus, that you'll take it seriously. Aren't you glad Jesus did? Would you pray with me? God, thank you so much. Thank you that as much as we fall short, and we all do, we all do, God, that you came through for us that you are still coming through for us. And God, of all the experiences that we have in our life, of all the obstacles that are in front of us, some self-inflicted, God, would you give us a brand new perspective today that what we think isn't possible with you could be. God, even right now, would you give us a chance to be more honest with you than maybe we've ever been? You can handle it. You already know. And who knows the difference it could make in our lives if we will. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.